forever. Dog. That's what attracts me when I'm trying to create projects, is humanity and common decency. That's what I'm attracted to. Evil, in the sense of it being gothic evil, a sense of that, is not. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where I played a guy dressed as a nun who gets mugged. It was their Halloween episode. Welcome to October on Household Faces, where we will be celebrating Halloween with guests who are closely associated with the horror genre. And we begin with John Carroll Lynch, who has had a wide and vibrant career on stage and screen. I was going to say he's worked with a lot of the greatest living directors, but I think he's actually worked with most of the greatest living directors, the Coen brothers, David Fincher, Martin Scorsese. It's a really, really good talk that goes from Denver to Chicago to LA with a nice little break in Minneapolis. And it also gets kind of spooky because we talk about American Horror Story and Zodiac. Please welcome John Carroll Lynch. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this. I, it's one of my favorite things. The The actor's career um, is uh, who's Jack Lemon? Get me Jack Lemon. Get me a young Jack Lemon. Who's Jack Lemon? Yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard that with uh, musicians, um, but it, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, it works that way. It, the only person it didn't work that way for was Jack Lemon. Right, right. Um, you know, he, he was offered work until <laughs> he died. And... I don't know if you know about his gravestone. Do you know about his gravestone? It says Jack Lemon in, which is with an arrow pointing down. Yeah, and uh, I mean that's I a guy I with a sense it. of that's yeah. a guy with an awesome sense of humor. Well, he's in that great patch of Westwood Memorial Park that also has um, Billy Wilder, whose stone reads, "I'm a writer, but nobody's perfect." Yes, Rondi Dangerfield, whose stone reads, "There goes the neighborhood." Yes. There's some real gems. I always say like, because it's Westwood Memorial Park is this very small cemetery yes. near UCLA. Yeah. And I always tell my friends who are in from out of town, like if you want the most dead celebrity for your dead celebrity buck. <laughs> Go there. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, yeah. you really, it's just jam packed. Like Forest Lawn has a lot of people, but you, you know, you, it's huge, you know, it's in Westwood Memorial Park is like somebody's like a, your rich friend's backyard. It's not huge. It's not acres and acres, but they're all kind of crammed in. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so it's uh, a green room. It's like a green room. It really is like an incredible green room on like the most amazing episode of Carson ever. Yep. Yeah. It yep. really I, is. I, I, what would be on your gravestone? If you um, um, had one. Uh, probably just the, uh, just to save time, just the link to my IMDb page, I think. I, I won't have a gravestone, but uh, um, in keeping with the ones that you're describing, mine would be back to one, everybody. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's that's what how hopeful though i mean that's what a what a lovely frankly buddhist sentiment to uh to put out into yeah. the world yeah. 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 <laughs> um back to one, everybody. well let's go back to one then you grew up in denver yes 
And what did your, I can't find what your parents did for a living. What were your- Both of my parents were lawyers. Uh, they were, they both practiced law um, throughout my uh, childhood. They, when they were married, uh, before they were divorced, uh, uh, they were, uh, they also taught real estate law. Mm. Uh, they ta taught people to pass the real estate exam. My father owned a, a, a newspaper called, he bought a newspaper with his business partner called Servi's Journal and turned it into the Rocky Mountain Journal, which was a weekly. And um, and then uh, and then when they sold it on, it has become something else. It's still being published. Uh, and I think it's online now, but it's still happening. Um, and uh, it was a business newspaper. And still is a business, I guess, um, website. Um, and then both of them practiced a variety of different law throughout my uh, growing up, uh, my 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 brother and my sisters and my growing up. So you you, you grow up in in Denver, which has hey, there's a there's a there's a regional theater. There's some stuff going on there. Your parents are are both in law, in real mm -hmm. estate law. When did you realize that acting was something you could do for a living? Uh, well, I want to first say that while uh, when I was growing up, there was no regional theater in Denver. It, okay. it was actually it actually came to Denver. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts was established by the Bonfies Foundation, uh, which was um, uh, which was founded with oil money by a woman named Helen Bonfies, who was a an, uh, who was uh, an actor as well she uh, she acted in her even after she became uh, wealthy and she um she acted at the, the elich theater's uh, uh chautauqua circuit theater which was a beautiful wooden theater on the uh in the uh, surrounded by you know a dance hall and a and an amusement park and uh there was a i went there when i i went to that amusement park all, all the time when i was a kid and uh, later on, when I went to see, when I really paid attention to the theater, there was an, a, a a notice from the Denver Post saying that um, um, Edward G. Robinson was fired uh, because he refused to wear a tie during rehearsal uh, at a at a pr production at that theater. Really? Um, yeah. Anyway, she gave a lot of money, and they they started that when I was seventeen or eighteen years old. I. And um, so there, but but what Denver did have was a very vibrant, uh, both uh, community theater scene and and children's theater, not children's theater to be performed for an audience of children, but uh, a theater that audiences that children could participate in. Oh wow! So um, there was several different organizations that did that, including. Um, Bonfies Theater, which is was a, a, a theater now a fantastic bookstore bookstore called Tattered Cover, and uh, also um, a wide variety of other uh, organizations like that. There was also this uh, along with that. There was this um, very um, uh, um, angry priest uh, who uh, who started a a thing called the Original Scene. Uh, through Catholic Youth Services, he was a kind of a frustrated actor, I think, to some degree, and he uh, he started to uh, uh, do shows with kids for kids, and um, they would 
they would uh, it would started out with little um, musical reviews and then musicals and then he, he, you know eventually they did musicals and straight plays and they were doing four shows a season. Were they were these um, faith based plays or were no they- no 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 they were just plays they were just plays the the faith came uh, the faith came uh, beforehand in uh, a prayer before you started and and also on Sundays there would be a voluntary a mass you would you would, you could go to mass. And get the Eucharist before you performed "Skin of Our Teeth" or whatever we did. We didn't do "Skin of Our Teeth," but uh, "Arsenic and Old Lace." And uh, so, you know, we did. Uh, they did a bunch of shows there, and my sister was participating there uh, in plays. She is a comedian uh, now. She was an actor before that. Uh, she became a. Com- she was a comedy writer, and she became a comedian. Um, a kind of a mix of those things at the same time, and uh, and uh, and my uh, my brother also participated in theater. He is now a lawyer, but he had a beautiful singing. He has a beautiful singing voice, and he um, did plays at his high school. And that particular high school production that I saw of his, the first production I saw with him in it was Camelot, and he was a knight. And he sang beautifully, but the thing was that it was a really good production. It was such a good production of a high school production of Camelot, but that they moved it to a community theater for a, for an independent run. Really? Yeah, uh, yeah. And it did well. It did well. So um, it was it was interesting. My sister, one of my sister, my sister Annie uh, was not involved in theater at all, but my sister Nora was, and she was on the backstage crew of that show. So I saw my brother, and that really was the thing. I I had been interested in, you know, acting. Uh, I had acted in like um, plays that um, one of my um, friends in elementary school, Dwandlin Reese, would write plays. They were kind of like family dramas. <laughs> <laughs> and we would perform them at you know third and fourth grade, and also um, we had a guy on my uh, on the street I grew up in in Denver who uh, did movies with the kids on the street. They he he wrote and produced movies that they could all be in, and it was and then they'd show them at the at the block party. This is a remarkably vibrant uh, art scene. It's a participant. It was participatory. You know, yeah. I mean, um, it was. Um, and that that's what was so great about it was you could do it. It, it was available. And um, there was a low bar in terms of the participation because everybody participated. What were, what were some of the plays you did when you were when you were growing up? Oh, um, well, the first play I I was ever in was Guys and Dolls, uh, and um, it was we did it for the for the original scene, the Catholic Youth Services thing. We did it at uh, um, Temple uh, Buell Theater, which uh, is on the campus of the, now the University of Denver Law School. But then it was just I forget the name of the school it was at the time. But but he uh, but uh, we performed it there, and uh, there were I don't know I mean there were probably seventy kids in it, you know, um, and uh, um, everybody got in. Were you and, uh, were you ensemble or did you? Have I a, was. I had. I played the. Uh, I played the MC of the Hot Box. Sure, the Hot uh, Box chick chick chickies. Yes, it was the. Uh, you know, we take you down on the farm with Miss Adelaide and her Hot Box farmerettes. Right, right, right. I was unaware of the entendre of Hot Box. Probably uh, just as well, yeah. And and uh, Father Dwyer did not uh, chose not to clue me in. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> the reference. So it became it, 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 it's it's clear that this was something that drove you really early on because you went to you went to college for it. Was your was your intention always to go to I mean, I know you got your BFA from Catholic. Was did you start as a as a BFA in theater? Yeah, my intention was uh, from the time I was 14. I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This, this is, is it. what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and uh um and I was um you know, I was intent on having it having it happen and uh I got a lot of great support from um from a lot of different people uh in order to keep me uh, going in in the process. I also was fortunate enough to get um after the Catholic uh to um you know, audition and get work and um that was helpful. What took you to uh, to Minnesota? I moved to Chicago um, before I was. Uh, I had no intention of moving to Minnesota. I, I moved to Chicago because it was a very hot theater town, and and like um, like you know what I was talking about in Denver, it had a reputation for participation. That there was a lot of opportunity to audition. There, it was a lunch bucket kind of. Uh, relationship uh, to the work in that town. What do you mean by that? uh, Well, uh, there was nothing uh, Chicago theater and uh, Chicago as a city and Chicago theater uh, had a reputation for kind of um, a blue collar mentality. Um, People would, would create um, storefront um, companies and storefront theaters. They were, they were about getting on stage. Uh, it probably had a lot to do with the with the fact that it's a, a town that birthed improv, you know. Yeah. As we know it today, it was the you know the St. Mark's Players and uh, Second City, which came out of that. The uh, and, Del, and Del Close, um, the the father of uh, of modern improv theory. They, they, you know, he they were all there. So I think there was a kind of a sense of just get on stage and figure it out. Did you, you know. do any improv while you were in Chicago? No, uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, because I had this, um, I had this kind of thing that I was going to do. I was going to be a classical actor. That that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to find a rep company. I wanted to be in a rep company. That was my dream was to get into some kind of rep company. And um, I had uh, fallen in love with um, Shakespeare. I'd fallen in love with that language. I'd fallen in love with classics, and I loved the 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 breadth of the the words and the theme the themes of those plays they were powerful and important and uh, and I I wanted to be a part of that that's that's where I thought my my destiny lay had you done some Shakespeare in college uh yeah I'd done Shakespeare in college I'd uh, I, I <laughs> when I auditioned for the uh, Denver Public Schools middle school all summer all summer all middle school play so I was 14 13 14 just before high school so it was now I was in ninth, eight eighth to ninth grade um I uh the I chose the monologue I chose was what light through yonder window breaks and and um that's what I auditioned with which was uh, when I think about it now is just must have been the most hilarious thing in the world to watch a kid do that well, I mean, R- R- Romeo's supposed to be like 14 or 15. I don't think it's Yeah, but come on. I know. Okay. No, I mean, all let's, right. Yes. <laughs> let's be real. Let's be real. Let's be real. So then, so, so you, you, there's, there is so much vibrant uh, theater in Chicago. It's such a scrappy um, 
town. Yeah, I liked that about it. Quality to it, and it didn't feel it didn't feel as intimidating to me as New York did. Interesting. And um, my sister had been in New York for a couple of years. This is it Nora, was, the comic. yeah, my sister Nora, and and she had she was taking classes at the neighborhood playhouse, you know, and so I got a sense of how difficult it was, and uh, I was not ready for that. I was not ready for that, and and I I I followed a girl to Chicago, um, and um, the girl didn't last, and Chicago it turned out Chicago didn't last either because I was there for about six or eight months, and I got an offer to do the traveling the touring company uh, uh at the guthrie theater i auditioned because i i auditioned um for a cattle call audition at north light theater which no longer exists but it was run by a, a man named michael maggio who was the artistic director and he had this cattle call uh there for for a pl- the play he was well he had the cattle call because the chicago area theater contract required it and his casting director there watched a bunch of things and I did, I did, you know, contrasting monologues. And as I was leaving, the person said, uh, do you, I mean, are you, do you consider yourself graceful? And I was like, uh, graceful. Is it athletic? I said, yeah, I guess. And so they, they called me down to audition for, um, the touring production of, uh, Frankenstein playing with, uh, fire which was the name of the play. It was based on Mary Shelley's book written by Barbara Field, who just died a couple of months ago. Mm. Um, and she, and uh, it was a very esoteric uh, play. Well, complicated, I would say more. It, had, um, it took place on the ice as Frankenstein chased the creature across the Arctic. And, uh, and then the flashbacks would happen and there would be a younger creature and a younger Frankenstein. And uh, and his love, and so we toured with that. I, I got I got the audition and ended up getting the part and of the younger creature, and so we toured with that. And it was the second tour I'd been on, uh, but it was an actual tour. The first tour I did was a bus and truck of two Shakespeare plays of Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream for you, national you, players. I played uh, I played the ghost uh, uh, and I played. Um, Snug the Joiner, nice one of the the lion, one of the mechanicals, and and that tour was um, you know nineteen eighty four, eighty five. It was an eight month tour, bus and truck. You uh, put up the sets and you you maintain the props and costumes. You put up the lights, you broke them all. You did the show. You broke them all down. You drove, and um, in two vans and a truck, and um, there were. 12 or 13 of us, I think, all together. And, uh, and uh, you got paid, this was 1984, you got paid $200 a week, and you took your hotels out of that. So it was, um, it was, an, it was we did 120 dates in 113 cities oh my over God. the course of, of a school year. And most of them were high schools and colleges um, for one night. Um, or for a couple of days, if they wanted to see both plays, and and uh, and we would have like nine o'clock in the morning, um, nine a.m. Hamlets, where we could we had to do a version of the play that could fit into the ninety minute, um, you know, like we had a ninety minute Hamlet where we just skipped the fourth act basically, and um, and uh, you'd have to 
play a ghost at nine in the morning, you know, nine, nine Oh five in the morning, uh, uh, in a, in a, uh, semi dark cafetorium. Um, when you're trying to be a ghost in front of tan curtains, it, it does not go well. Um, you're not really terrifying. But do you come out of an experience like that just as a machine though? I mean, are you just like, I mean, do you have like, are you incredibly sharp after uh, 120 shows in 113 cities? Well, I mean, I, I learned a lot in terms of stage craft. I learned a lot in terms of practicality. I also um, had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> had a nervous <laughs> breakdown, and um, and uh, uh, and really, it was the first of uh, quite a few times in my life where uh, the the um, the peer of what I thought was my personality snapped off and floated into <laughs> floated into the ocean, and uh, um, uh, for about two or three days um, in the tour, I I I did a Gregory Peck impression for about two or three days straight. I, I mean, that literally was I was certifiable. Um, what, I just did that. Were you able to go on? Oh yeah, I did the play. Yeah. <laughs> but in the van, it got really I mean, people were really worried. Really worried about me. Was yeah. it just the was it just the the stress? Did you have your own stuff going on? Like what? I think most of it was just I didn't know who I was when I I didn't know I didn't know anything really. I, I the the primary thing that I liked about theater was I didn't have to be me. And that appealed uh to me. Uh, and uh, it's only over the course of time that I realized how uh, I've realized how um, fruitless that particular part of it is in terms of safety. Um, and I'm I'm grateful for those for those times. They were certainly uh, they certainly helped uh, save me from a lot of internal um, angst, but. But but it was uh, that was the beginning of the like oh I can't treat this I can't treat this this way I I, I got to figure out a different relationship with this this thing that I want to do because I I'm not going to make it I mean after I got out of the Gregory Peck thing after three days I was like I really this is not this is not a safe circumstance was it a question of bringing the work home too much No I think it was just I think it literally was uh, having no real sense of who um i was um i was a series of i mean i i it's funny i feel the same way now in some ways um i i read a lot of uh of spiritual literature and um uh there's a beautiful poet named rumi who talks about the um the 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 jewels the veins of jewels underneath the ground uh of your house and you should tear your house down you shouldn't be precious you should tear your house down and i've read that over and over again i'm i'm obviously paraphrasing it cuz it's beautiful poetry but um but the uh the thing i love about it is that um the house that i think is is should be torn down is the ramshackle thing that people call themselves that the self is what they that what Rumi's really talking about is to remove to remove a conceptual sense of um self and uh 
and so I, uh, when I was, when I was uh, 20 on that tour, self was r- ripped away from me. Uh, this, this illusion of who I thought I was, was ripped, ripped away. And, and I only came up with Gregory Peck, um, uh, as a substitute. Um, and so over the course of time, that's been kind of the process of, of the, uh, life, uh, life in the in this work, trying to sort of get away from the the ego and the external trappings thereof to get to something. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't even. It, there's not even the word ego seems to me to be too uh, practical. Okay. It's even more. It's even more. Uh, it's even more. It's more like scratching away at the at the illusion that I'm anything at all uh, except just what I see and hear and feel this this idea that um I mean we we talk, I just listened to this thing about the emphasis on individual identity that um that is certainly extant right now this this idea of of a need to define oneself and then a need for that self definition to be honored and respected by society and I think those are both amiable goals and important. It's, it, it, but it feels sometimes like the intention of the journey that's presently happening uh, um, in the day-to-day trappings of life for me is to drive away from <laughs> to drive away from this idea that identity is is uh, self self definition of identity is important. I don't think it is. It's not necessary. Um, as a matter of fact, it can be. It can force me to fight about things that don't matter. Think about it in the work. Like, there's times where um, um, people talk about a backstory of a particular character, and I was on a I was on a uh, film set, and there was a, a really delicious, wonderful, not ego driven argument, really amazing argument between the director and an actor about a piece of the backstory of the character. And they had, they were diametrically opposed about what this backstory was. Mm. And, and they had obviously had conversations about it in the rehearsal process. And both of them had really substantively important non-ego driven parts of the story uh, that both of their competing backstories would honor and service. And uh, they finished uh, by agreeing not to mention the backstory. So they just stuck with the present moment and let the actor was left with their secret and, and the director and the writer were left with the moment to moment life that they needed in this moment as opposed to having an argument about something the audience will never see. I was just talking with your friend and former colleague, Beth Grant. Has she retired? No, God, no. Then, no, then I'll, I'd prefer that she'd, you'd call her my colleague. because I apologize. We'll You're absolutely right. Again. Yeah. No, you've, I, you guys have worked together a couple of times, actually. Um, yeah. And you've directed have. her even. Um, yeah. She was talking about um, having a massive backstory on speed. And she... She talked about how it, it is not in the finish. It's not in the script they shot. It's not. Um, uh, it was not 
there was very little rehearsal process, obviously, but there is a bond you can see on that bus amongst those passengers because they've all got a secret connection. They all that they all had massive like the first act was people getting on the bus and telling kind of, you know, little chunks of exposition. So you'd be invested in these people. So it was going to be sort of more of a uh, um, Poseidon adventure situation, mm-hmm. towering inferno kind of thing. And yeah. um, and that's all gone, but there is still this emotional connection between her and Sandra Bullock, between her and the other, the her and the bus driver, and it uh, it works anyway. It doesn't necessarily have to be a big public thing; it can be the actor's secret. Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm 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 more and more of the belief that 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 the the secret life that you're you're in, the secret that you hold, is the thing that you should protect. And not share necessarily the thing that's driving the work that you're doing. In other words, the director doesn't doesn't have to know. You know, as a matter like as an example, doesn't have to know that you lost your daughter. Um, you know, you lost your daughter because of some some terrible um, birth issue, and that's what is driving you. Um, they don't have to know that. Because it might actually juxtapose to, it might actually um, weight the work in their, that you're doing in their mind in a way that they're not actually seeing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the color, the, 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 mo- the, the, the life that I'm living right now has been affected by everything that's happened into the life up till now. But I don't need to explain to you. <laughs> That, especially in narrative drama, because narrative drama is so, is you, it's time is so precious in narrative drama. Um, Moments are so precious and they, uh, the audience needs to know what they need to know to understand this story right now. If the, if the past is important, then it'll, it will, uh, as an example, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in, in in Hamlet, all we know is that they're college friends of his, and everything else we learn about them happens in the moment-to-moment life of the play. Now that actually informs the past that Hamlet plays. There's almost no there's no story of remember when we were in Elsinore and the, you know remember when we you know no nothing none of that we, you know when they were back where where does he go to school not Elsinore because that's where he is anyway wherever he goes to school I can't remember Wittenberg when that's he, right. you know Wittenberg. remember back in Wittenberg when we had ales and the, no none none of that Shakespeare doesn't give you any of that he doesn't need it but his sort and, of his suspicion of the two of them comes across early on and that yes. tells us a great deal about their past. That's right. The, 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 their lack of trustworthiness is the primary thing. And you can make up a story about the trustworthiness. All three of those actors can make up a story about their untrustworthiness. And it doesn't have to be the same story as long as the untrustworthiness plays in the moment. Yeah. While we're talking about backstories, this actually leads us kind of seamlessly to your first major film role as uh as Norm Gunderson in in Fargo who yeah. has he is given a or if not a backstory at least a very centralized hobby um yeah. in in the way he is it's this incredibly occasionally very very violent crime drama and he just wants to paint his birds 
that might show up on a stamp. I mean, it's 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 interesting. The, the only thing that I would say, uh, I, I mean, that that uh, Fran and I met. We talked about how maybe how the characters met. We had we created a kind of a backstory for ourselves, which was tossed out by Joel and Ethan in the very first. Uh, well, in the second scene we shot, and actually the first scene, um, the first scene we shot was in the police station. And uh, I was giving her Arby's. Yeah, you got and, Arby's on me, Norm. Yeah, and sure. and uh, Lou comes in, Bruce Bonney's character, and um, and they're talking about work. And I turned over my shoulder and was was listening. And uh, that's how I, you know, that's how I rehearsed it. Or we didn't maybe did one take. I can't remember. But uh, Joel and Ethan came over and you know had a moment where they th- they thought because that's what they do. They think. And then I think it was Joel who said, no, it was Ethan said, uh, he doesn't really care about this. He doesn't care about his, her work at all. Interesting. And I was like, oh, well, but I mean, maybe they met. Uh, That's what we were thinking. Maybe they met. No, no, they didn't meet. Uh, He was never, he was never a police. He didn't care about it. He doesn't care about it at all. And I go, "Uh, okay, so I'll play that. So, I played that moment and then the subsequent moments of other people who come talk to her about police work. I'm more interested in the fricassee or something else. And um, it came to my understanding watching the movie that what that creates is safe haven for her. She doesn't have to talk about her work ever again. She can see a foot bouncing on in and out of a wood chipper. And she can come home and no one will, he will wrap her in the warm blanket of his love and never ask her about it. And his stamp painting. And he'll talk about how, how, how disappointed he is that he, he ended up with a three cent stamp. But I mean, she, it's, it's a lovely thing. It's, it's, it's a beautiful moment and it ends the film and she ends up after all she's been through, she ends up giving you a pep talk about how they need those three cent stamps when they change the prices yep. for, the, for the kids today. This is before the forever stamp. Um, yes. uh, uh, it's, it's a, a lovely moment. So that's an interesting thing of, of, you know, having a backstory, having a secret, being able and ready to let it go. If you need to, I've seen fights. I've seen discussions with actors where they're holding on to a backstory that they created, that the director is asking them, is telling them that it is not an accurate, it is not driving them towards the right emotional place or the right connection with the material. And, uh, and, and, and it has to be jettisoned and 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 they're unwilling to do it and i've seen it i've seen it a lot and it's never helpful i'm gonna guess that if you come to and i'm guessing and if i'm wrong please I, i'm sure you'll let me know if you come to say clint eastwood with a massive backstory about your character <laughs> you're laughing is he going to embrace this input <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I, I can't, it, it, you have to keep in mind there's a, there's a cast C-A-S-T-E system involved in But film. sometimes there's an E at the end of that cast. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is a lot of, t- all the time. And there are people who are on the, on a film that are collaborators. They, they are, they are co-laboring with, 
the writer and director and producer in, in the film. And then there are then there are those uh, who are sidemen. I think of it as like in a musical sense, sidemen or sidewomen. And they're brought in because they can really bring they can really do those three notes of the bass of the brass section super good and they nail it i mean they can they're a machine they can come in and bam like bam every time it's going to do that like there's a funny story i heard about uh joel and ethan doing uh uh but and i think it was a budweiser ad they were directing it and uh and uh the uh, ad the ad company the, the the production company goes well you're not you're going to get bill bill thomas to do you know your beer drop right and they're like i what who's you know the beer drop like at the end where the the beer comes in like the person like the beer drop yeah okay well we need to get this guy yeah he's he's the best he's really expensive We'll have to fly him in from Montana, but I mean, he's worth it. He's totally worth it. So he's the guy who drop who slams yeah, the whatever down the guy's on the table is, yeah. and get and yeah. gets that right amount of fizz over the top. Exactly. And yeah, and also right. the right amount of sweat on the bottle. You know, the thing that makes it really attractive. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, they get the guy and they fly him in and they pay. Okay, it's your dime. You want to buy this guy? Okay. And then you know they realize that this guy is worth the money because <laughs> the focal length on the shot is literally millimeters and he's got to hit that with that cold beer every time and apparently he was just like um no this one's too cold give it back i mean he had a he had a he had an assistant he chilled he says it's time to go now like i mean he just knew it and he never missed the focal length he just bam it was an in it was it was in focus every time and they finished in half the time I did a so, Tylenol spot years ago where I had to drop three tablets into my palm and same thing, incredibly small focal length, like like yeah. the, the line between like the lifeline and maybe the little muscle next to the thumb had to get it right in there. Brutal. Yep. Take after take after take. Yep. I, I We went into go, I was on a, a commercial about a tape measure uh, and, and, uh, and we went into golden time uh, as they were trying to get the glint of the light off the tape measure on my hip. Like I had to, I had to go through the frame and it was like a particular speed. If it was too slow, it looked arbitrary. If it was too fast, I wouldn't get the glint. So it had to like over and uh, hundreds of times just to get the flash off of the tape measure. I mean, that, that's, People don't I mean, realize. People don't realize yeah. the 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 tiny little technical things that that go into this this line of work. So anyway, when to go back to the Grand Torino, I didn't have that relationship with Clint Eastwood. I wouldn't even have presumed to on that particular set. I know that I know there are many stories of people who presumed that and were were disabused of that <laughs> in terms of of their relationship with the filmmaker, but. He came in with a reputation. You knew you knew you had to be ready. You knew you had one take. You know that's what you were going to get. And um, and uh, so he doesn't really he he's not he's not interested in anything. Uh, my experience of him is that he's not interested in anything but what's happening right at that moment. He wants to capture that. That's it. Nothing else matters. And the and the the life inside of that moment is what he wants. The rest of it is of no consequence. Juxtapose that with David Fincher 
with whom you worked on on Zodiac and who is famous for just hundreds of takes. Was that your experience? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was. I mean, that was my experience. We did. We did dozens, if not tens of. I don't know if we ever made it to a hundred, but we did a lot of takes and and coming from the theater, coming from doing, uh, you know, the same play and you know, hundred you know, the same two plays in 60 different locations over the course of eight months. Uh, that was not a problem for me. That was, that was theme and variation work. Uh, it's fun to do. I, I like it. And I was sitting with, uh, Elias and, uh, and, uh, Tony Edwards and Mark Ruffalo. And, um, it was just incredible how fresh everybody was all the time. They were just, it didn't matter how many times we did it. It was, brand new every time so much so that after the day and a half that we shot that scene we all got up and went i feel more energized now than when we sat down i mean it's wow. this is really this was really fun uh it was really fun but he yeah he's meticulous and he's meticulous that's what he requires in his work i equate it to um you know what how Picasso changed over time. I went to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona and he's a young artist learning and his figure drawings are beautiful. They're, they're, I mean, supple, flesh-like, incredible. Um, and he's, I don't know how old he was, but he was super young. And, and then he's like, this is boring. I don't, I don't, I don't need to do this anymore. I need to do something else. And he did something else and did something else and did something else. And in each of the cases that you're talking about it, you know, with the Fincher or, or, or Eastwood or any of the other greats that I've had the good fortune of working with, every one of them has a different, knows what all of the, knows every part of what film needs to be. And if they're disregarding it, if you as an audience think they're disregarding it, don't be under the illusion that they don't know they're disregarding it. <laughs> they absolutely do. And the question should be, why? What are they after? When, when, he come, when, when Fincher comes in after like 14 takes and, and gives an adjustment, does he give adjustments or does he just- All the time. Oh, and, and what kind of like, is it, you, you used a, an interesting uh, uh, theme, uh, sort of changing theme and, and tone from from take to take. Is he just sort of experimenting on the fly a little bit, or is he just trying a bunch of different angles? What kind of notes does he give? I mean, he gives he gives he gives really superb acting notes. Uh, he 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 understands acting. He's a person who seems to understand uh, each aspect of filmmaking as as well as the person doing it. And um, that may be just simply an illusion he provides, but it, it never felt that way to me. It always felt like um, um, he wasn't acting because it wasn't his interest. It's it, uh, it, it's not that he couldn't have. Um, I I found listening to him uh, or watching him, which is which is usually even more. Um, telling in taking notes as an actor is to watch the director give you a note um, because oftentimes their body will tell you what they want more than their words will. Mm. And um, to watch him think about a note before giving it um, to, to, to watch him choose the words um, 
to be as specific as he was and actionable words? I mean, I'm sure you've been in circumstances where somebody gives you a note and you're like, well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty sentiment, but there's no, there's nothing to play there. there I, I don't know how to play that. And your job is to translate that unplayable thing into an actionable note. Um, I heard this story. I've told these. I've heard. I've told these stories before. But I heard this story about Henry Fonda on uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and uh, Sergio Leone is talking to him, and the translator's going mile a minute, talking about you know Frank's motivation and what's happening in the scene, and and how he gets to it, and he's listening and listening and listening. Yes, yep, yep, okay, yep, yep. And Leone's done, and he turns to the translator and said, "I just have one question: hat or no hat." <laughs> And I, it's not that he was disregarding everything he said. It's just that I, that that question wasn't answered. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it, it seems to me that that's the most important thing is to listen and be available to collaborate. Um, and especially when people have earned it by the work that you see see of theirs, um, that's that should be um, that should be your your guiding star. I love Once Upon a Time in the West so much. Yeah, the first the first 20 minutes of that movie are the best movie you're going to see that year. And it's it's amazing for Fonda's work because after years of being America's dad, um, for him to, um, spoiler alert, kill a child within the first 20 minutes of, uh, of a movie is jarring now, but I, I can only imagine what it must have been like to be like a, a fan of like, you know, this is the guy who played Abe Lincoln, for God's sakes. It's, un it's, it's, you know, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Tom Joad can't kill a kid. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing too. You know the boldness of that that filmmaker too, right? You you you, you can't kill a kid. Like there's just like it's like no, there's no crying in baseball. Like you can't kill a kid. Like if you set up that a kid's in danger, okay. But if you kill the kid, like as a filmmaker. I mean, a lot of people are like, I'm out. Like, that's it. I want, I'm not doing that. Uh, I can't, I can't deal with that shit. It, that's not, that's not entertainment. And there's a moment where you think the kid's going to make it. There's yeah, a moment there where you think the kid's going to make it. Yeah. And then, and then Frank's henchman blows the whole thing open. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly right. Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here, DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. I, I, I got to sort of fanboy through you to all these incredible directors you you worked with. When you're working with someone like Scorsese, you did a few days on that. I'm gathering that wasn't just like a, a drop. I was on the out. film for a long. I was on the film for a long time. Yeah. Um, um, uh, it, some of it was because of weather issues. Um, 
ironically, um, what they needed for a lot of the exterior scenes that I was in was cloudy skies. And it was the most beautiful spring and summer in Boston. <laughs> it was absolutely gorgeous. It all so hinges on the terrible weather. So much yes, of that movie it all hinges, hinges on, on the, the yeah, shitty weather. That's, yeah, that's right. It all hinges on this, <laughs> on this sky, you know, this, <laughs> this angry sky. And, and he had to wait for angry skies. Did you um, get to talk movies with him at all? N- n- uh, no, no. No, no, but uh, I, I, no, but I had. Uh, 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 he was very. He was intimidating for the first few days, and I had to get myself out of that. Um, he wasn't intending to be intimidating. He just was to me, and I had to just remind myself that I had made movies before, and I, this was just a movie, and and that worked out. I mean, I, I, on the third day or so, I was. Uh, I was fine now. I like. I was like, okay, this is good. I'm. I'm good. I. I don't know exactly where he is at all times. You know, that's how it was feeling. Like terrifyingly paranoid about where he was, and then. Uh, and then Max von Sydow walked out, uh, and then I was just. I. I was. It was. You know, the most. I was. I was tongue tied. I couldn't speak to him. I. I tried, and a, a series of disjointed phrases came out um um you know he he was a person who um mental more it was interesting when you meet people you you don't quite realize how important their work is to you until maybe until you meet them and i just i just uh, i've i've i flashed back to watching the immigrants uh on um the at the cooper theater and in denver and watching him uh, save himself and his son in this in the way that uh, George Lucas uh, has um, Han Solo save um, uh, Luke Skywalker, which is he cuts open a horse and oh, they right. climb inside the horse in a in a flash blizzard and they survive by by killing the animal and uh, and climbing inside it and um, I, I remember seeing that and I remember seeing he there's a moment. You see him in the old country, as I recall, um, with a plow, and he would be plowing and stop and rock, plow, stop, rock, plow, stop, rock. And now he's in the new world, and he is plowing, and he just holds up the earth, and it's the look on his face is like he's saved. You know, he's it's he says nothing, and the whole world has changed, and it's going to be hard to be here. But this is why they came. The earth is why they came. And it was so moving to me and um as a kid. And um and then I, I met I saw him and met him and I just had no I couldn't say anything. I, I said just the stupidest things and, and I just I shook my head and I walked back to where I was sitting near Marty and he saw that I was disjointed from the exchange and he said, I know, what do you say to the guy? Well, that's got to be nice. a huge, a huge oh, it was great. load off. Yeah, it was great. Like it was great. Like I don't know, but what do you say to the guy? I mean, it's Max von Sydow. He, he, he played chess with death. What am yeah, I supposed I to? I don't, you know? I don't know what you say. <laughs> it's I so I, it's got to feel really good that Martin Scorsese was out iconed by someone. <laughs> he was fanboy, you know, and it shouldn't be surprising because that's what he is. I mean, he he loves movies. He loves movie making. He loves movie makers. He loves actors. 
um, everybody, everything about it, he loves. Um, it's, it, that's what I was wondering because there's such an enthusiasm in in the way he he talks about movies. And I was watching Shutter Island and the incredibly old fashioned use of music. Like there's this incredibly intense Bernard Herman type symphonic score when not a whole lot is happening. There's just like, you know, the Jeep is going along, coming up to the hospital, but it's all, it's scored very intensely. There's, there's such a, uh, a an old school quality to that movie. If you look at the cast uh, of the people who he cast in as members of the asylum, uh, people who worked at the asylum. Okay. Um, Sir Ben Kingsley, Max von Sydow, Ted Levine, and myself. All of us at that point had played sociopaths in major films. All of, of us had played murderers. And, and he's aware that the audience brings their feeling of the actor with them. That's and, so interesting, um, and it's interesting to to look at the film as uh, are they menacing or is it just? His, I mean, his his point of view, you know, his paranoia, the audience is let in on from the jump. So there's a, a real sense of just our sort of shared film going collective That's right. unconsciousness. That's right. He's bringing it with him. He he knows that happens. He knows. You know, he he he's more aware of it, right? Because his of his passion for the craft of filmmaking and his passion for filmmakers and filmmaking. But he's aware of it. He's aware of what what people bring uh, to it, and and it was it was uh, conscious and knowledgeable. That's the thing about um, he he is he knows more about it than. Uh, he's forgotten more about it than anybody else knows. And, and that's uh, in their own way, each of those filmmakers uh, that we've talked about, all of them are, are like that. Do you get recognized a lot for better, or for worse from your work on American horror story? Uh, yeah, I get, I, I get recognized a lot from that. Uh, it's uh, there are demographic groups that uh, uh, different demographic groups recognize me for different things. Oh, I love yeah. talking about that. So, so, so what's the, what's the American horror story crowd? Can you tell what there, someone's going to recognize you from as they're approaching you? Sometimes, okay. sometimes I can. Um, uh, a lot of times that show has a very, uh, female heavy def- demographic. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, uh, more likely when, uh, when I'm being approached, um, there's, um, it used to be back in the day when I was on the Drew Carey show or near when I was after I was on the Drew Carey show, um, uh, whenever black people would come up to me and recognize me, it was always from that. Really? Uh, yeah. A show with no black people, hardly at all. Yeah. Well, what, um, embarrassing now to say that, but yes, a Cleveland show with no black people. Yeah. (laughs) What, um, I, I actually, you know, it's funny. It, it, it's, it's interesting, the Drew Carey show. I cannot find your episodes streaming, which is which is you can't stream them, which is interesting. none of them are streaming. 
No, you can find the first season. You can find oh, really? the first oh, season. Okay. Yeah, but you're not on yet. No. Um, I remember I was a fan of the show and I and I, I recognized even at the time that like, OK, part of the joke here is that here's this guy who's six foot three and is built this way and he's in a dress. Got it. Fine. Um, nice. And and that was there was an inherent sight gag. But they really considering it was a half hour multicam, they tried to dimensionalize the character. It wasn't yeah. just a one off. Well, and I mean, it it became not a one off, and yeah. that was that was to their credit, definitely, and to Drew's credit, and to um, everybody's credit, it was that, and they, and they did that. Um, but it was when when I first came on, and I was doing that, I was doing the um, the job. First of all, that I just want to say that the sensibility of even at that time, uh, the sensibility and and sensitivity to to gender issues was non-existent and virtually non-existent. Yeah. So, so um, it it never uh, it didn't occur to the creators of the show that it was going to be anything I think but funny. Yeah. And um, I uh, and I, but uh, I mean I I I asked Jerry Cohen, the director. I did my fitting, and then I was walking back. I did a, a camera test of the whole thing, and I was walking back, and Clay Graham. One of the executive producers of the show was. I overheard him talking to the costume designer, and he he said, "I don't know that the shoulder pads feel like they they feel they make it look even bigger." And I I don't know, it may, could we find something without the shoulder pads? And I heard that. And I overturned and I said to him, "Hey, listen, uh, I'm sorry I overheard you, but if you take shoulder pads away from." me my shoulders are round and they're a very masculine look this is a kind of a joan crawford look that we're after where you have the broad shoulder dress because without that i don't have and i can't my my waist doesn't taper i can't taper my waist uh, so that's part of how the illusion the feminine illusion that we're going for is is that and as i'm talking to clay clay was five 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 six and i'm in that outfit seven feet tall and and I'm talking to him, and I see him kind of leaning, leaning further and further away from me. And he's like, uh, "Okay, okay, yeah, no, I I get it, yeah, yeah, okay." And I turn around, I'm walking away, and he goes, "Man, you're really getting into this." And I asked Jerry Cohen later. I said, "So tell me, is this person?" Uh, the term was transsexual at the time. It's not anymore. But I said, "Is this person a?" Uh, is this person dressing in drag? Is this person a crossdresser? Is this person a, a transsexual? What is this person's relationship with this behavior? And he said, uh, I don't understand. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 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 no. A crossdresser is a person who identifies as, as male, but likes to uh, dress in women's clothing. A person who's uh, in drag is is creating a female persona, but is still uh, related to um, the masculinity inside of them. And then someone who is transsexual, which is the word I used at the time, is someone who is identifying with the, the other gender, has a uh, an, an other gendered name, likely, and wants to be addressed that way. And he was like, the first one. <laughs> I mean, that's that was the degree to the conversation. Like, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a surprise. This that, is nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, it was important to me to understand how to play it, 
because you can't play a sight gag. No. It's not playable. Not not for a hundred episodes. Well, I mean, I mean, I wasn't I w- when I was on that show. I was never intended to be on any more than one episode to start. That was it. That was all there was. They called yeah. me back and did more because it went so well, and I was grateful that they did. And I ended up doing. I mean, it's incredible to think I was on less than a third of those shows, less than a third, and I was on seventy-five episodes of the Drew Carey Show. Oh my God! They did. So many of those. They yeah. were doing 26 a year. 26? Yeah, they were Average doing order is like 22, 23. Yes, That's exactly. a lot. They were adding more because it was like a workhorse for ABC. Yeah. And it was never, it was always, there was always a relationship with the network that they were kind of embarrassed uh, at it. And, and it was so popular and so goddamn funny that cast was so goddamn funny that's a strong Um, cast oh my god when you can rely on craig ferguson to just walk in and give you three minutes of funny whenever you need to like that's craig ferguson like you really have a cast that's just ridiculous and the dynamic between um kathy and drew which was the center of the show was so great I mean, it was terrific. Drew and 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 uh, and the two, um, you know, Ryan, Ryan and Deidre were ter- terrific, and they just kept on bringing great people, people who were funny in. Like they had a Phyllis Diller in, yes. and um, Phyllis Diller, like she was hilarious at the table read, and she did the scenes. And there was a courtroom scene. I can't remember what the purpose of the courtroom scene was, but. She'd be listening in the back row of the courtroom scene and her cue would come and she would miss it. She'd just miss it. And there'd be a long pause. And the script supervisor said, Phyllis, that's your line. And she goes, is it? It's my line? What is the line again? And she said it. Okay, just bring it back. And then she they'd get the cue and she would nail this thing. It was hilarious. It didn't matter that she didn't know the line. She nailed it. It was so <laughs> goddamn funny. And it was like that with everybody on that show. It was a really fun show to do uh, and really funny group of people. It came across, there was a joy. It, what was interesting about that show and made it unique in among 90s sitcoms is that they seemed, the characters seemed to acknowledge that they were funny. They would they would laugh at each other in a way that you would not see on a Friends or a Seinfeld. Even uh, there was a real sense of like, oh, these are coworkers who genuinely amuse each other. I also think there was an important thing about it too, which is everybody was in agreement that there was no Winfred Lauder, that there was no department store, that there was <laughs> no Dresden, that there was no that all of this was was to create mayhem. That they didn't. They didn't, it was never precious about any of it. It was like, we're going to get a bear that drives a truck. Like they just, <laughs> the, we're going to do musical episodes. We're going to do a, we're going to do a, a Rocky Horror. It was like, it was, it was the equivalent uh, of a live action Simpsons in that way. And that, yeah. in that it, it, the structure was open to really broad changes in tone and content uh, and everybody was game for it, and the audience was game for it. 
it came across. It really came across. There was an interesting macro arc to your career, John. I'm, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but there's a, a moment somewhere in the early aughts where people suddenly decide like, oh, this guy can also be terrifying. We have seen cuddly John and we have seen warm John who looks good in sort of a Barbara Stanwyck outfit. But but somewhere in the early aughts, somebody, and maybe it's Fincher, decides, oh, you know, we can use this. And then then come a series of deadly clowns and yeah. um, your work, um, a little scene, but terrific horror movie called The Invitation, which I always recommend to people. It's a great film. It's a great, it's film. great film. It's a great yeah. film. Um, what Was that, a, was that a, a rebranding on your behalf or were these just the roles that started to come your way? I mean, it was it was certainly I was I was seeing a kind of um, world of characters that I loved playing, but that were were going to be limited, and and I knew that I had a lot of darkness that needed expression um, inside myself. I had a relationship with the darkness of 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 humanity directly and that that needed to have um some expression uh, in the work that i do and and i i said to my agent at the time uh and my manager now same person um i gotta throw some elbows hmm. um i, I can i'm gonna be i'm gonna be in a realm of these choices um uh in commedia terms, um, that we're going to throw a lot of people that are going to be looking this up. But so, uh, commedia dell'arte characters are um, stock characters, and uh, and uh, um, I was getting, I was going to be relegated to the second pantaloni. Uh, I was going to be relegated to the next door neighbor, or the the person who came in, to to be the to, to be the foil for. Um, I mean, the best I could hope for would be, uh, you know, Norton on the Honeymooners, okay. and that would mm -hmm. be perfectly fine. I mean, Art Carney was a genius and perfectly okay. fine. I would have been perfectly happy with that. But, but, but I did feel like I needed to throw some elbows, and um, so there was a, a movie that came up called Gothica. It was a Warner Brothers picture. It was going to be made by. Uh, Dark Castle, and it, uh, uh, so the Gothica came up, and it was going to be written. It was written by Sebastian Gutierrez. It was directed by Sebastian Gutierrez, and Carlo Gugino, his wife, was going to play the lead. And um, I read the script, and I was like, "This character is this is the right fit for me. Like this is this is this is I want to do this." And he called me in, and I read it, and he said, "I I, I he was so." amazingly kind and cool about it. He goes, I got to tell you, I really want you to do this part, but we're shooting it in Australia and it's on a budget and they're really making me look for um, somebody in Australia to do it. But I just want to tell you, I just, I just think you'd be great in this part. And um, I said, well, thanks. And I went back and I called my agent and I said, listen, I, none of this is, should be about money. This is about a transitional thing and I, I need to do this part uh and um we got to figure out a way for me to do it so whatever the money is doesn't matter and and um they did I, we did some some math and this was a quite sobering moment and one that was um amazingly um sobering in terms of world film world cinema 
and which is one of the many reasons why so many Australians, when they can, work in the United States. Um, I was talking about doing it at SAG minimum, and the actor who was going to be playing that part, who was going to be living in Sydney, that person uh, was going to do the part for 40% less than I could do at SAG minimum. And no wonder there is like our, there our is shores no are teeming with Australian money. actors. There is no money. And like I was when I heard that, I was like, that's Sydney. It's as expensive as New York fucking city. How is anybody making a living as an actor when the best job you can hope for, uh, you know, in these circumstances, after 10% for your agent, 10% for your manager and taxes, how are you living in Sydney on that money? You're I mean, making twenty percent of what an yeah, American you're making, actor would do after you're commissions making, and taxes. Yeah, after everything, you're making twenty percent of what an American actor would make at minimum, at the minimum, with no pension. Health is taken care of by I was the gonna say. by the government, but with no pension, no pension, no pension contributions. So I was just like, "Good God, that!" Uh, and I just was like, "Well, I I can't break the union. I, I right, I'm not right. doing that." So so I guess this I got to say goodbye to this. And a few months go by, and I get a call from my agent and said, well, um, they've come back to you about Gothica. Um, uh, Sebastian's not directing anymore. Matthew Kosovitz is directing. Uh, Carla's not in it anymore. Halle Berry is playing the part. They've got Rock Dutton and Robert Downey and, and uh, Penelope Cruz. And Matthew wants to meet with you about, about the, the sheriff. And I went and met with him and I had the same conversation with him. And uh, Matthew hired me and I did that part. And that part, uh, even though the film was not nearly as, I mean, it was, it did fine. I think it, did okay. it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't nearly, it was, I mean, it's a scary movie yeah. uh, and, um, and everything. And so, and that was the movie that Fincher saw. And said, "Oh yeah, like we could use him," and that's how that turn started. And um, then, you know, over the course of time, horror has become a bigger part of the world. But I kind of should have known that in the first place, since I got my equity card playing the creature in Frankenstein. That should have been something that was a, like I played Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace, which who was played by boris karloff on, on stage Broadway, and then raymond but, massey yeah, and the raymond massey in the film so i'm like i should have probably guessed that this was going to be a part of my thing being a heavy when you're heavy is probably something i should have known <laughs> was going to happen and 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 uh and it's been it's been great and and the ir irony was that before the gothica um audition i would look for things and find them and i wouldn't get in because they go well he doesn't really have an edge Oh my God! I mean, uh, we love him, but he's just—he's just so lovable. He doesn't really—he doesn't really have an edge. And now, of course, uh, it's—I—I it, I got it—I got this job last year on this show, Big Sky, and my friend Ira Stephen Bear, when he heard he got the job, he goes, "So, do we find out you're a sociopath in the first episode or the last episode?" <laughs> End of the first. I was taken aback. End of the first. But um, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I do. I think there's a, I mean, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a new change, hopefully a new movement towards things of common decency. That's what 
attracts me when I'm trying to create projects is humanity and common decency. That's what I'm attracted to. That evil, in the sense of it being gothic evil, a sense of that is not something that I'm really interested in um, producing. I, I'm happy to do it, and and I like it's fun. But uh, when it comes to stories individually, I want to tell, and they always end up like super small, or they're big farces, or they're, I mean, those are the stories I want to tell. Well, you you directed Harry Dean Stanton in what I think was his last film. It was um, his second to last film. He worked on a couple of days on something else afterwards. Okay, but it's yeah. it's it's his last big role for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and and it was only his second leading part. Oh my God! Oh, uh, what are we coming first? Paris, Texas. That's it. Paris, yeah. Texas, and okay. Lucky. Wow. And, you know, I, I'm uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give him Repo Man. I'm going to give him co-lead of Repo Man. Uh, yeah, he's awesome in Repo Man. Another conversation, perhaps. But yeah. um, uh, he's fucking great. In he's fucking great. Normal fucking people. I hate him. Um, yep. But the um, in that movie, aside from directing him, it's an incredible cast filled of people I want to have on this pe- podcast. Barry Shabaka Henley, for instance. I'm dying to have him oh, here. Oh, he's great. He's fantastic. You direct David Lynch. Yeah. That was weird. What was that like? He, it, it could have been a really intimidating day, and he just made it you know, a couple of days, and he just made it super easy because he 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 behaved as an actor, and he knew how he wants actors to behave. Fantastic. So he behaved as the actor he would want on a set. Oh, that's so heartwarming. <laughs> that's how I interpreted it. I haven't talked to him about it, mm-hmm. but there were moments where uh, uh, there was a moment where Harry was really struggling with this one exchange. It was it, he was turning to Beth. Uh, behind the bar during yeah. an, an ex, a drunken exchange that he was having with Ron Livingston. And um, and he just kept on turning to her. He goes, God damn it, I can't find this. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this line? And I said, well, Harry, this is kind of why you're saying it. I can't remember what I said. But I said this is why you're saying it. He goes, I said, I, I said something like, you're looking for somebody to take this out on and you take things out on her. Like you're looking around the bar for a dog to kick. Mm-hmm. And she's the dog. And he goes, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. And he turned to David. He goes, do you understand this? Which I have done myself in circumstances that I'm struggling. I have done that myself thousands of times. Trying to bring an actor onto your to side. To elicit the alliance of an actor okay. in the dynamic with a director. Okay. And, and David said, yes, Harry. Yes, I do. And, um, and he goes, well, what is it? What the fuck is, what, what is it? And he just glanced at me really quickly. David goes, and he says, it's not for me to say, Harry. Wow. So, you know, I mean, he was incredibly gracious. He picked the wrong actor to, to uh, try to form an alliance with, because that guy's going to take way, the director's side. <laughs> in a way, yes. In a way he did. And, and yet he didn't, he admitted he had a way of interpreting the, the scene that, would have worked for, yeah. for, and probably was more, uh, was probably better than, uh, you know, more effective in terms of the communication than the one I was giving. And, uh, and, but, but at the end of the day, in the edit, the moment is cut because Harry was right. Oh, wow. We didn't need it. Interesting. Yeah. Harry was absolutely right. Uh, I can't wait to rewatch that scene. That's going to be great. Yeah. Um, it's just not there because I realized that it, it, I realized what Harry realized in the moment, which was it diminishes the pressure on David, on 
uh, on his character uh, about his tortoise, which is what what the scene was really driving towards. Yeah. So was, he was absolutely right. Who were some of the character actors that you you loved when you were coming up, or nowadays even? Who are the people you look at? And you're like, oh, that's a great career, or I can't take my eyes off that guy. I mean, there's 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 so many people whose work I adore. Alan Tudyk, I love. I love Alan Tudyk. Wendell Pierce, CCH Pounder, um, Alfre Woodard. Uh, technically, I think she's a leading lady, but that's me. I love those actors. I. Beth is a spectacular actor. Barry's great. I mean, there's there's actor after actor after after actor that is is constantly um, surprising me, and I want to see more. Um, it's kind of like being you know an, an old man on the fence of a pickup game, you know, watching a basketball game and loving every every minute of it. I I still love actors, and and there are actors that you've never you know you have never heard of that I uh, I adore who do theater in a wide variety of places who are friends of mine who are just spectacularly uh, wonderful actors uh, but uh, when it comes to character actors there's no there's no end uh, end to them um uh, uh margo martindale um i mean it's uh, um I, I mean uh frank langella you know uh, uh uh it was fun to work with him on on uh, chicago 7 and well he's an interesting guy because i mean you know, was there a bigger lead in the late 70s early 80s i mean the guy was Absolutely you know not. was the hottest thing my mom had a massive thing about frank yeah. langella as dracula had a yep. massive thing about that yeah. and then you watch him play julius hoffman in chicago 7 and that's a different guy it's a different guy, and 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 he is. Uh, but there's there's very few actors in the world who have enough gravitas to hold down that side of the courtroom on their own with that cast on the other side. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're liter- It literally was like one against fifteen, and we he held his own. I mean, that's a pretty impressive. It is very impressive. Was there a role that got away? From John Carroll Lynch, that you—it doesn't have to be one. It doesn't have to be a bitter thing. In fact, it's no, probably better. It, it almost—it almost never. There almost never is. I mean, there. I mean, I, I read for Walter White. I read for Al Swearingen. Really, neither of those. Neither of those parts were mine. They—they they were for the people that they were cast. When when I saw them, uh, um, it was just so obvious. Brian was so perfect, and and. Um, I mean, I just, no, you don't, you don't, you know, it's funny at this point when I'm looking at something and wanting to do something, there was a recently a part I wanted to play that I was just a touch too old for. And, um, and it went to another actor. And when I heard who it was, it was like, yeah, I'd cast them too. I mean, I like, like, cause, cause it's, you know, all the, everybody who's doing it now, when, when you get to this point in, in your career, Everybody is really good, and and it's more it's more exciting to see 
inter- oh, you know who um, is really turning me on right now? And it was from a reading I did, but I've I've watched his work for years, uh, and uh, I I don't think he's a he's a leading man. I think, but Aldous Hodge, um, um, he did. Oh Ralph, yeah. Oh, he's he, great. He did he Ralph is. Mouth. He played Ralph Mouth in the reading of Happy Days I did for the SAG Foundation with um, Henry Winkler played the Fonz and Glenn Close played Mrs. C and I played Mr. Cunningham and Aldous Hodge and Ellie Gorey were uh, Richie and Ralph Mouth. Oh my God. And his Ralph Mouth is hilarious. That's so good. I want to see him. I mean, he's funny on leverage. Like he's a funny guy. He's got a great. He's sense got a of dry humor. sense of humor. He's, yeah, he's he's he can play anything really. And yeah, I I I, I mean, I I thought he was great as Jim Brown. I thought that evening yeah. was was a good evening uh, in for actors in in that piece. Everybody did a terrific job in One Night in Miami. Yeah, everybody yeah. did a terrific job. And uh, you know, I mean, um. Yeah, just I mean, there's tons of tons of wonderful wonderful actors out there that um, I I I never tire of seeing. Evan Peters is a guy I never tire of seeing. I I'm always surprised by what he does. He's always full commitment. It's always something different. It seems to come from a very you know intuitive place that that isn't uh, that isn't conscious. It just it it just comes fully formed. Kathy Bates, um, you know, it just goes on and on and on. John, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, I, I wish you the best on whatever mystery project you're working on right now thank in you. an undisclosed location. Yes, in an undisclosed location. Um, and um, uh, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us. I appreciate it. It was really fun. And that is an episode wrap on John Carroll Lynch. You can find him on Twitter and on Instagram at Mr. J.C. Lynch. And you should. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <laughs>